The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Can data predict this year's World Cup winner? Italy stages a political and economic tragic opera, and Ant Financial is trying to raise $10 billion. These are the questions we'll be delving into on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry. My co-host here with me in New York is Jennifer Sabre, and we'll be handing over later in the show to Quentin Webb to discuss Ant Financial. The World Cup is starting in mid-June, and Peter Tell Larson in London, you put together this handy-dandy breaking views calculator to help uh, our readers figure out, hey, who could actually win this thing? So why don't you tell me quickly the first kind of four factors that you looked at um, when putting this thing together? So what we were trying to do was put together something that could predict winners and losers based on hard data. And we picked basically four inputs. So the value of the first one is the value of the players. The second is the population of the country. Uh, the third is the, uh, uh, the the dedication of the fan base, basically the amount of time that people spend watching television of previous tournaments. Mm-hmm. And finally, participation, just how many people are actually signed up as active soccer players in that country. And then we put those four together. And uh, that out pops the winner. Okay, so you know, I've been playing around with this earlier, and I have to say, how do we do it to where Germany doesn't always keep popping up as the winner? It seems like they have the advantage here. Yeah, what? come on, dude. You're you're Dutch. I'm English. Jen is American. None of us wants to see Germany win, or do we? I don't know. But give us something else. Well, I'm I'm Dutch, and the Dutch aren't even in the uh, competition. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to rub that in. Sorry. But actually, if you break down the um, the different factors, you get you get very different outcomes. If you look just purely at player value, then uh, it's actually the French team that has the biggest combined value of all the players. So uh, you know, Paul Pogba plays for Manchester United. He's in the French team. He's a very valuable player uh, in the transfer market. Uh, Antoine Griezmann, who plays for Atletico Madrid, also a very valuable player. So, so they, that squad, when you add them all together, comes to about £916 million. Pounds, and that's slightly more than Spain, which has about £909 million. Pounds. Of course, that, that's somewhat backward-looking, right? Because this, this is it's not what they might now be worth. It's what they, they were last bought or traded for, correct? So if one of these players didn't hasn't moved for three years, four years he's going to be quite a way through his career compared to the last World Cup. That's absolutely right. And, of course, you also get stars emerge from the World Cup. You get little-known players from Africa or, or South American countries who kind of burst onto the world stage at the World Cup and then find themselves you know, in high demand from other clubs. So um, uh, values can actually move around um, during the tournament. I mean, we, we, we obviously, um, you know, we enjoyed this calculator. We played around with it, with it a lot, and we discovered from using the various scenarios. You, I think, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. Basically, you can come up with five different winners out of the 32 teams. So this is if you, if you look particularly at the um, the fan base, uh, which is basically measured as um, the proportion of the population that watched at least 20 minutes of the World Cup in 2014, um, and we have sort of TV data to back this up. Um, and then Colombia actually comes out on top. So I think 82% of Colombians watched at least 20 minutes of the last World Cup, and that puts them slightly ahead of, of some other uh, countries who also have very fanatical fans. So if you purely do it on that criteria, they win. But actually, we've also put in participation, because obviously if you're a nation of couch potatoes, that isn't necessarily going to produce a good team. You also want 
uh, a large number of people who are actively participating in the sport. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and on that metric, Costa Rica is the outright world champion because Costa Rica, we found they have, they have, it's, it's a very small country, uh, I think four or five million people, but um, they have over a million registered uh, uh, members with the National Soccer Association. And that's effectively one in two, uh, uh, half the male population. Wow. Well, so, so you basically, you try to capture enthusiasm and money uh, here, as well as a couple of other things. But, you know, as I look down the list of the others who've been excluded on those bases, so you've got four previous winners of the Cup that don't figure. So England, ho, ho, ho. If, actually, I frankly, I do wonder if, if you could come up with a way of getting recordings from the t- people watching on TV of you know, how many times people swore at their national team. I think England you know, would probably come out top on that. But uh, anyway, enough of my annoyance with my team. Spain. Argentina and of course Uruguay, which hasn't won the cup for you know 60, 70 years, but does have Luis Suarez, the biter, the well-known biter on the team. Um, so you don't think past victories count for much here, or even um, home advantage? Uh, Russia. I mean, how would you? This is getting out of the, the the calculator here, but did you think about you know home advantage and how that might have played into anything in the past, or or whether it does? I think I looked. Six out of twenty tournaments have gone to the home team. Yeah, so home advantage is a big factor. Um, I mean, it's not it's not in our calculator um, because we couldn't really sort of uh, find a way to, 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 to include it properly. But also because, to be honest, uh, it, it's not really going to matter. Um, I mean, Russia, um, unless something really weird happens and all of their opponents develop food poisoning or something, hmm. you know, the night before the game or are mysteriously injured, um, uh, we don't think Russia on any metric is going to be a real challenger in this tournament. But it has obviously in France and in, in, in England in 1966, uh, in Argentina in 78, it has, home advantage has been a big factor. But this, this World Cup is a little bit like the 2010 World Cup, which was in South Africa. Again, South Africa was sort of, you know, they put on a good performance, but they got knocked out fairly early on. And then it was really, uh, there, was, there was no home advantage for the rest of those teams. Um, okay, Peter. Uh, two things before we let you go. One, we've do- we we've done this calculator before, correct? The last World Cup, and we were surprisingly accurate. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, when we did this four years ago, we predicted that Germany would win, and they won. Uh, okay. All right, Germany, Germany again. So basically, you're just repeating the same old thing. Come on. Okay. <laughs> All right. So who do you think is going to win? Just setting aside the calculator. Well, I think I, look. I mean, if, if you sort of look at sort of past performance. Um, we talked about this a little bit. Actually, the number of countries that participate, that get to the final, is relatively small. I think in the last 14 tournaments, there's been basically seven finalists. Um, and two of those finalists are not playing this time. So Italy didn't make it, and the Netherlands didn't make it. So that leaves you with five countries, basically. Brazil, Argentina, France, uh, Spain, and Germany. Um, so there's a pretty good chance that, that two of those five will be in the final. And, you know, on our numbers, uh, when you add all the, all, the, all the numbers together, Germany comes out on top. I would say um, there's only, uh, one, in the modern era, there's only one example of a country successfully defending its World Cup title, and that was Brazil uh, in 1962. Um, so the, chance, the odds of Germany doing that again are low but i think you know if you try to make it a sort of a a data-driven model rather than just assuming it's going to be luck and refereeing decisions and weather and various other things then uh, then germany comes out on top again putting your faith in numbers rather than uh, your than heart luck. Uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> excellent great thanks for that peter um 
I'm sure many offices around the world will be glued to your calculator and the TV screens for much of uh, June and July. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Let's turn to Italy now, a country which is no stranger to political turmoil, but it's now engulfed in a, such a big problem trying to form a new government that government bond yields are now almost double what they were a month ago. The stock market has crashed. Bank stocks are down 20% in the past two weeks. Lisa Yucca from Milan, please help us sort out what is going to go happen next. How are we going to sort out this mess? Or how are they going to sort out this mess? Okay, so um, we're in the middle of a bit of a tragic comedy here, or as we say in Italy, an opera buffa. Um, the president <laughs> of the Italian Republic torpedoed the formation of a radical government, the first radical government uh, in the history of the Italian Republic, on Sunday uh, because he didn't like the choice of a staunch Eurosceptic academic as economy minister. Um, he actually said that uh, um, the debate on Euro membership had to be discussed in public um, and that really sent the country into a massive, massive panic, let's say, about whether or not, uh, you know, discussion of Euro membership um, would be prominent, you know, in any um, political campaign um, going forward to the next election. So, so Lisa, just to boil this down, it sounds like Italy is having its Brexit moment, maybe? What are we calling this now? Quitterly or something? Is that the, yeah. the, the, what the wags <laughs> are calling one. it? So this was certainly the feeling on Monday and Tuesday. Um, the feeling was we were heading towards snap elections and the discussion on Euro membership would be central to that campaign. So a little bit of a repeat, if you want, of the French presidential campaign, if you remember, where Le Pen was campaigning for France exit. Um, however, things have um, rolled back now because um, the two radical parties, uh, which are called the League and the Five Star Movement, have now, um, let's say, made peace with President Mattarella and uh, are trying to form again a government. So discussions are ongoing at the moment. It's unclear whether Savona will be or will not be part. Savona is the sorry, Eurosceptic academic. Paolo Savona would be part or not of the new government. Um, but we may end up having, um, let's say, populist formation and, and, and not really having the snap elections that we had predicted two days ago. So basically the, the, the two parties... Um, what do you think happened here? Did, did they really try and sneak someone in who was more Eurosceptic, or I mean, was it well thought through? I mean, you've already, I mean, like you said, both of them are now certainly one of them, the head of the Five Star Party, has been saying we were never in favour of leaving the Eurozone anyway, so don't worry about it. But it does seem like they tried. I mean, from outsiders, it seems like they tried to pull a fast one and, and, and got called on it and, and had to backtrack. Is that really what's happening, or is it is it more like you said? Is it this comedy of errors that just <laughs> won't go away? Or tragic, com tragic comedy, Tra as you called it. It's it's a combination of factor, I would say. The position of the two parties over uh, on the euro has been ambiguous. Um, the debate on it, you know, didn't really play a role in the campaign um, up to March fourth elections, which was very much about let's spend more money uh, in various forms. Um, however, there is a strong uh, feeling um, among some members of the league, which is. Um, 
let's say, rightist anti-immigration party with a large base in the north. So some prominent member of the League have expressed very, very anti-EU and anti-Euro positions openly, openly saying mm. we should leave the Euro. So it doesn't look like it was, um, how can I say that, a blunder. It looks as probably the League was trying to escalate uh, the discussion without really addressing this in the political debate, in the political campaign. Okay, Lisa, why don't you just set this up? How important is Italy to the EU? Because the markets seem roiled by all of this. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty out there. Why does this matter, say, more than Greece, which this whole thing happened, what, like maybe five, Five, six years ago? ago. Yeah. So it's obviously the size of Italy's economy and of its debt. Uh, Italy is the third largest Eurozone economy and uh, several times larger than Greece. Its debt is 2.3 trillion euros. So if Italy were to leave the euro, um, there is sev- you know there are several question marks. One is could Italy leave the euro without defaulting because you know many people think it's impossible to have one without the other. Um, and that would obviously cause problems to other European economies. And then there is a a bigger political question. So could the euro itself, the euro project, survive if one of its largest members um, leaves it and maybe leaves it in a a difficult fashion? Okay, so, I mean, Lisa, it seems like at least the president and the two major parties in parliament have patched up the differences for now, but this doesn't bode well for for a, a, a strong, sustainable uh, government for the future. I mean, this this surely isn't going to last. This coalition, if they can't even get this right on day whatever it is. Um, I mean, you're right, Anthony. So the coalition could definitely have issues, but uh, the bigger problem in my mind is that uh, because the two parties are very openly confrontational vis-à-vis the European Union and uh, their the eurozone partners, um, it could just escalate tensions. It it will be a big, big headache for the European Union. And it doesn't look like it's going to go away soon. Even if this government collapses, let's say, in the short term, we'll have new elections. And there's really no opposition at the moment inside. The opposition is very weak. So we may have, again, the radical parties winning big in the next vote. And possibly with with one of them maybe even having a, a stronger hand in the government. Absolutely. The league, I would say. Mm. Scary stuff. All right, Lisa, thanks very much for coming on. I'm sure, given where this is going, we'll have you back on soon to, to chat some more. Thank you. Ant Financial is a phenomenon in Chinese finance. It accounts for more than half of the country's mobile payments market. It manages hundreds of billions of dollars and it is about to bring in foreign capital at a truly enormous valuation. I'm joined here by Asia editor Jeff Goldfarb to discuss what is up with Ant and how should regulators and investors view this company. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Quentin. Can you tell us a bit about Ant Financial? I think here in Hong Kong it's you know a super big name, but maybe people elsewhere don't quite realise how important an entity it's become. Yeah, it may have become sort of crossed people's radars um, 
not long ago when it tried to buy MoneyGram in the United States may have been the first exposure that people had to it in, in the U.S. investment community. That deal obviously was um, shot down by regulators um, for a variety of reasons. But, but as you say, Ant is just an enormous player in China and increasingly in Asia um, as, they, as they kind of roll out their payments model um, across the region. Um, people will also be familiar with it because it's closely linked with Alibaba, um, the, you know, the massive e-commerce business that's run by Jack Ma. And Jack Ma actually controls uh, and financial. And, um, and you know, at this stage, Alibaba will, will get in, is in the throw in the stages of getting an equity stake in Ant as well. And, and again, sort of why they're in the news again now is that they're out there trying to raise a, an enormous amount of money. So what are we talking about exactly? <laughs> Give me some sense of well, the size I mean, involved yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, and by the time this airs, it may the, the fundraising may have closed, but um, but the, the word is that they're they're out there um, looking for ten billion dollars. What's interesting about this is that um, it's the first time they'll bring in international investors. So there's talk that um, firms like Carlyle are involved, um, and also uh, Tomasic from Singapore. Um, are among the the long list of investors that are going to put in ten billion dollars into this outfit, and and potentially impute a, a one hundred and fifty billion dollar valuation, which will make Ant larger than most of the big Western financial institutions. And in fact, if we consider it a unicorn, I'm not sure if Ants can be unicorns, or if companies that are already backed by other tech firms can be unicorns. But if we could consider it that might be the biggest unicorn in the world, right? Much larger than Uber or probably even Xiaomi, the mobile phone company. Yeah, I mean, it'll, like, I, mean, I, said, I mean, it will not only surpass its, its peers in the technology space, um, as Ant um, likes to think of itself, but also within the financial sphere as well. And you raise a really interesting point there, which is this question, to put it in short terms, is Ant best thought of as a fintech company, i.e. a financial technology company, or as they like to position it now, a tech fin company, i.e. the technology matters more? Which of those two things is it, and how, how are they even different? Well, I mean, I guess it's w- what you lead by, right? I mean, and so I think... You know, fintech has become, of course, the catch-all phrase for anything that takes the financial world into the technology uh, arena. Um, you know, Ant, I think, is trying to position itself more as the other way around. In fact, there's been reports that in their um, investor presentations, they are calling themselves tech fin, um, leading with the technology, um, with the finance, you know, in the back. Um, you know, this is an interesting question because... Uh, from an an investment standpoint, I think you'd be much more, more want to be thought of as a technology company because, of course, the valuations are considerably higher. Um, I think from a regulatory perspective, though, um, you know, which is the the, the real question here, uh, or one of the real questions, sort of uh, hovering over Ant, is you know, are you a financial company? And um, you know, I think that's part of my sense is that's part of what Ant is trying to do is. Oh, don't think of us as a financial company. We don't need to be regulated like those big banks. Uh, we're more of a tech nimble company. Um, so, you know, we got to be able to move quickly and we don't need to be encumbered by regulation. Cut us some slack. But I think, I mean, our colleague Robin Mack has written about this recently and she is not really super sympathetic to that line of attack. I mean, what is what is the breaking views case for thinking of uh, Ant Financial as a financial company rather than 
and technology. And the big question here is I mean, these new regulations and rules that are coming down in China um, to try and, you know, curb leverage and other, um, you know, uh, risk factors that are going on in the financial community. So, you know, the one question that's come up is, uh, are there going to be new rules for financial holding companies or effectively, you know, banks? And, you know, as much as Ant would like to think of itself as a te- technology company, you have to consider that, um, you know, as you mentioned at the opening, they, they account for more than half of the mobile payments market in China, and they have a business beyond China. Um, they offer loans. They do credit scoring. Um, they own 30% in an online bank. They run one of they run the world's biggest money market fund. Um, they don't technically run it, I should say. They you know they basically what happens is um, sort of idle money that people use in the payment system gets swept into a money market fund um, that they don't manage, but they control the company that does manage that money. So it's a um, one step removed. Yes. Um, so I mean, all of these factors put together make Ant look an awful lot like a financial holding company. Um, and the other, you know, the big question to just ask yourself, I think, as a as a consumer, as a regulator, as a politician, even as an investor is, what would happen if Alipay, their, you know, sort of the centralized system that they have, what if that just kind of shut down, either for technological reasons, um, if there was some sort of crisis, there was, you know, people making run for the exits, like, what would that look like? And, and given the amount of clout that they have in the financial system, I think it, the answer is it would be pretty scary. <laughs> I think China would at least, you know, for a day or two, grind to a halt effectively, right? Without yeah. without this or its competitor from yeah, Tencent. Yeah, I mean, look, they've got 600 million users. I mean, yeah. this is not an insignificant institution. And so, look, it, size is not the only issue. I mean, BlackRock, the you know, learned that. Uh, the U.S. government, the Fed, was thinking about making designating them as a systemically important financial institution. They have over $6 trillion under management, but they made a persuasive case that, you know, we're not we're not really systemic. Ant may try and make that case as well. Um, but there's just all the hallmarks here of, a, you know, of of a company that, you know, that really is a financial institution that needs to be closely watched and, and to be make the fair point. You know, they are regulated in a lot of ways. It's not as though this is some freewheeling company that flies under the radar of, of uh, regulators in China. They are. It's just a question of whether, you know, there needs to be another layer of it that, that keeps an eye on them from a systemic perspective. That's really interesting. So bottom line, effectively, it's just too big to let this one kind of uh, work to its own devices. Um, well, we'll see. I, I, mean, I think also the other really interesting point here is that BlackRock is a sort of known quantity. We all know what fund managers look like. But Ant, as you've described it, is a new entity, effectively. There's nothing like it out there. So the regulators will have to sort of make some of this up as they go along. That, that's right. And I think, you know, I think, I think, look, I just think people are looking at it from different perspectives. I mean, you know, investors may be thinking of this as like a technology company from a valuation perspective. The regulators are taking maybe a different view, maybe should take a different view, um, what that does to the valuation becomes an interesting question. Either way, it looks like they're going to come out with a with a whopping number, um, and we'll see what happens from there um, on the regulatory front. Indeed, we will watch Ants Forward March with interest. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Peter Tal Larson, Lisa Yuka, Quentin Webb, and Jeff Goldfarb for coming on our show. We also doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman, and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. 
Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Please do share your opinions about our show and join us again next week.